The title of today's message is You Can Change and is found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 50 through 58. Back in 2006, a movie entitled Stranger Than Fiction was in the theaters. It was about an average white-collar worker who happened to be an IRS agent named Harold Crick. Life was normal for Harold until he began to hear a woman's voice in his head. This voice began to narrate all the events that took place in his life, just as they happened. The film, written as a novel, which Crick plays along as he hears the voice in his head, moves towards the climax, as any good novel does, when Crick learns that he dies at the end. So he frantically searches for a way to prevent his horrific ending. Please watch the following clip from Stranger Than Fiction. Excuse me. Excuse me. Are you Miss Eiffel? Yes. Am I interrupted? Yes. Let me assist that your publisher's hired. The publishers think I have writer's block. Do you have writer's block? I don't know how to kill Harold Crick. This is a story about a man named Harold Crick. Harold lived a life of solitude. He would walk home alone. He would eat alone. When others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day... Turn it up. Hello? Harold just counted brush strokes. All right, who just said Harold just counted brush strokes? Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's by a woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold couldn't concentrate on his work. I can't think while you're talking. You have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. Harold found himself exasperated. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid voice. So shut up and leave me alone! So you're the young gentleman who called me about the narrator. The thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. Have you met anyone recently who might loathe the very core of you? I'm an IRS agent. Get bent, tax man! Everyone hates me. Well, that sounds like a comedy. Have you written anything new today? Figured out how to kill Harold Quick. Little did he know that events have been set in motion that would lead to his imminent death. What? Why? Hello? Come on! It is oh, good. This woman, Karen Eiffel, one of my favorite authors. That's her. That's the voice. She's the narrator. Karen Eiffel, my name is Harold Crick. I believe you're writing a story about me. Is this a joke? You have to understand that this isn't a story to me, it's my life. So I'll live. I need to speak to Karen Eiffel. I'm one of her characters. I'm sorry? I'm in her new book, and she's going to kill me. How exciting is that? After finishing the manuscript before sending it to the publisher which would cement his fate, the author lets Crick read the novel to its ending. He reads the book in one sitting, and when he returns from having read it, he says it was perfect. 
now he could see the big picture and that he wouldn't change a thing. The ending of the story was a mystery, but now that it was revealed to him, he found it perfect. We tend to look at life that way, don't we? As a movie, in some ways. And our end has somehow been sealed by God, just like Harold Crick lived in this film. You die, and there's nothing that you can do about it. There's all things that are in control that you have no option to change. The Bible is a story. Much of it is a mystery as we read through it. We, too, after reading it, see that it is perfect. And we don't want to change anything in it, just like Harold Crick. In our text this morning, Paul reveals part of that mystery to us. And like reading any good novel, any good mystery, there must be a big reveal towards the end. Some things will surprise us in these mysteries, while other things might confuse us. But in the end, we will, like Harold Crick, find the conclusion to the mystery quite satisfying. So as we await the consummation of all things, we can listen to the voice of God in our heads as we read the Bible and he tells us of the ending that surely will satisfy. Before I left on vacation, we were studying the very aspects, varying aspects of the bodily resurrection as spoken of by Paul in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. There we learned that Jesus would be the first fruit of the resurrection and that his death, burial, and resurrection was the promise that all of us as believers would also rise from the dead. Paul makes it clear in this text we look at this morning that the bodily resurrection, just like Jesus's, is our hope. It's the believer's hope. Paul describes the resurrection in chapter 15 in general terms, of what it would be like, how it will happen. But here, in the text we look at this morning, he turns his focus to the events of that day. He answers the questions of when it will happen. We call that event the rapture, the rapture of the church. On that great and glorious day, all believers, according to the writings of Paul, will rise. The dead and the living will be taken to meet the Lord in the air. He tells us in this text exactly when and what will happen. We will receive a new and glorious body at the rapture of the church. But just like any good mystery, the writer, God, has waited to reveal pertinent information at just the right time about the who, what, where, and when of his story as penned in Scripture. In the text that we look at this morning, Paul reveals part of that mystery that had gone unknown when he tells us the what and the when of our bodily resurrection. So with that as our opening, our setting for the text, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we will pick up with verse 50. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find our text for this morning at page one thousand. 150. I said, uh, as I said, we can look at the Bible as sort of a, a novel, a mystery novel that we see moving towards a climax and some of the mysteries being revealed towards the end and then there is a climactic point in which there is a victory song sung. Well, that's exactly how Handel dealt with the text that we're looking at this morning. He set it to music. We know that as the Messiah. 
Listen to this verse. We're only going to have a short portion of it. From Handel's Messiah. And look at the words on the screen. The trumpet shall sound And the dead shall be raised And the dead shall be raised Incorruptible The trumpet shall Handel wrote about the Messiah's resurrection and our bodily resurrection, as you saw in the verses that were on the screen. It was such a great story to him that he wrote his greatest masterpiece called Messiah. His symphony had three movements to it. The first movement celebrated the transformation of the body of the believer. The second movement celebrated the future end of sin's domination in our lives. And the final movement celebrates the future payback for our service to our Savior and King. He got that from Paul. He didn't make that up on his own. It came right from the scriptures. One of the big questions that had plagued the Corinthians, though, was what happens to those who are alive when Jesus returns for his own. We know that those who are dead in Christ shall rise and be given new bodies, but what about those that are still alive on planet Earth at his return? Paul answers that question that has plagued the Corinthians in this text. This passage that we look at covers all the events of what we call the rapture of the church, and it includes, as I said, both the living and the dead. With that, then, let's look at the first verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Paul writes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul is speaking to brothers in Christ. He's speaking to those whom are saved. We know that because he uses the word brother. But he's also trying to answer their question about the end times. And that must be very important to the Corinthians and to Paul based on the length of his treatment in this uh, chapter, chapter 15. Paul here subtly introduces the truth of the gospel when he states that flesh and blood, which is a metaphor for the natural man or the unsaved, cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Sinful man can never enter into the presence of a holy God. The word that's used here for entrance into God's presence is the word inherits. Now, inherits implies a familial relationship, a relationship between the saved and the Lord. Lost humanity does not have that familial relationship. Flesh and blood does not have that relationship with God, but as we learn in the book of John, are sons of the evil one. So this figuratively speaks of the believer's 
saving relationship with God. We see this relationship of inheriting the kingdom of God in the Old Testament as well as in the New. In the Old Testament, you'll recall that the Levitical priests received no land as all the other tribes did as an inheritance from God. Instead, it was said that Yahweh, God, was their inheritance. Now, in the New Testament, believers are called priests of God. And we are given privileges, just like the Old Testament priests, that others do not have. And in fact, we are called kingdom priests. For example, in 1 Peter, he writes there saying this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. So, earthen vessels, the bodies that we possess here on earth, The natural man, flesh and blood, are not fit to enter into the presence of God in heaven. Paul makes that very clear. No one goes to heaven as they are today. No matter how healthy, how strong, how good-looking we might be, we are unfit for heaven in flesh and blood. You see, you cannot take this decaying body that we are trapped in to be in God's presence in heaven. That's why Paul contrasts the perishable with the imperishable. There must be a change. A physical transformation of the body must take place before a man is fit for heaven. This change necessitates that all who are alive at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ be completely transformed, be completely changed in their physical person. Only those who have new spiritual bodies will be fit for the environment in heaven. But how can this be? Is this just the writer's embellishment by Paul? Now, many people have debated what, when, how this takes place. Like reading a good mystery, there are lots of theories about how all of this goes down. Paul grabs our attention in verse 51 when he says, Behold! Look! Wake up! Pay attention! It's a very dramatic word to grasp the reader's attention. Look at verse 51. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Language is very important. Paul employs one of the great biblical euphemisms when he compares death to sleep. Believers do not physically die in the sense that the lost do. We simply go into a long slumber. That's Paul's point here. And the Lord Jesus will wake us up out of that slumber physically and we will meet him in the air. And then and there we undergo a tremendous change. That's the mystery that Paul is talking about. He uses the Greek word mysterion, which is a term that tells us that this is a truth that has been hidden, but now is revealed. You see, the rapture was a mystery to Paul's readers or listeners. It was a mystery in the old dispensation, the Old Testament, but it is now revealed by Paul to the church. What was the mystery? Simply this, that Not every believer will sleep or die, but all who are alive at the time of his coming will be changed, along with those who have been dead. 
their bodies will be transformed. As an aside, I'd like you to look at the language of this verse. Look at the alls. You might want to circle those because they're very important. Paul says we will all be changed. We will not all sleep. The word all nullifies several erroneous views of the rapture, as taught by some. One of the views, called the partial rapture theory, um, it hasn't had a lot of proponents in the past, but is becoming more popular today. It teaches that some believers will leave before others. There will be several raptures. Those who leave first will be raptured off the earth because they are somehow more holy, more worthwhile than those believers who are left behind to suffer in the tribulation. These elitists, these special believers, are deemed more worthy of escaping the tribulation that is coming upon the world as taught by Scripture. The unworthy believers are left behind, sort of as punishment for their unbelief or disobedience. According to this view, they must suffer through the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, called the Great Tribulation. But when they are found worthy, they too are raptured from this earthly purgatory in which they have been entrapped. Now, this errant view of the end times has some serious issues with it. The first and the biggest is that it destroys the view of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, that he died for all of our sins at the cross. But notice that Paul says, we will all sleep, but we will all be changed. That phrase is sometimes posted on our church nurseries. You ever seen it there? I'm quite sure that Paul didn't have in mind dirty diapers when he penned this. He's talking about the physical bodies of all believers. How many mothers would be upset if they went to the church nursery to pick up their child and they found that it was the only one that wasn't changed and had a pants full? They would be upset. The mystery here is that all, not some, but all, will be brought into the presence of God by the rapture. This points out the mystery that every believer will be resurrected and given new physical bodies, not just the dead, but those who are alive on the earth. This mystery reveals that the living saints that haven't yet died will meet Christ in the air. The concept of the rapture was unknown in the Old Testament. Now, there were prefigurations of it. We could see this in the lives of Enoch, for example, and Elijah. But this mystery that Paul now reveals is directly written for those who are alive at the time of Christ's coming. That generation will find this promise very important. This is our hope as believers today. As we are alive on planet earth, this is our hope that the Lord will come and that we will be changed, transformed, given new physical bodies and go directly into his presence. We won't have to fall asleep into a long slumber. Now, this was a new reality for Paul's listeners, readers. It's a new reality for some maybe here this morning. It's a well-known teaching of the church. But many do not understand it accurately. One little boy who didn't understand this concept of death asked his mother what death will be like, what this slumber that those who die in Christ will go through. She comforted her son by saying, Do you remember when you fell asleep in the living room and your father picked you up in his arms and he took you into your bedroom? When you woke up, you found yourself in another room. 
Death is like that for the believer. You go to sleep in one room and you wake up in another. But for those that are alive, they won't have to go through that. They will be transported directly and changed in their physical bodies into spiritual bodies and be in the Lord's presence. So the question that Paul is answering here is, when will this all happen? Look with me at verse 52 where he tells us that the rapture will happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, those who have fallen asleep slumber, imperishable, and we will be changed. Notice that Paul includes himself in that we, that pronoun. He was expecting the rapture to take place in his lifetime. We will be changed, not those that are alive at the time of Christ's coming. So the rapture, in Paul's mind, was imminent. It could happen at any time, at any moment, or literally in a moment. That word moment there is the Greek word atomos. From it we get our English word atom. It's the idea of not being able to divide or cut something. The the Greeks believed that the atom was the smallest particle of nature, and it was completely indivisible. Paul also says that it's not only going to take place in a moment, but it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. That phrase is found several times in secular Greek literature, and it describes the blinking of a star, the rapid movement of a gnat's wing, or the fluttering of eyelids. This phrase in the previous one emphasized the suddenness of the change that will take place for those who are alive and dead. It implies that the rapture will occur so fast there won't be any time to pray about anything, or to make any last-minute changes in one's life. Our transformation will not be a gradual process, but it will be instantaneous as an act of God. Okay, so what does it mean when it says, the last trump? What is the last trump? Is this the Donald's youngest child? I think not. Some have erroneously equated the last trumpet of this text with the seventh trumpet of the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 11, verse 15, and also, as well, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 14. But I think proper exegesis shows us that these events are different. Well, let me state this. Did you know that there are 62 mentions of trumpets in the Bible? Some of these trumpets are literal, and others are simply figurative. There are trumpets in the Old Testament, which announce the gathering of the Israelite troops for battle. There are trumpets in the Old Testament, which were blown to move animals around in the field. There were trumpets that called people to worship. There were figurative uses of the term trumpet, and usually these figurative uses spoke about some kind of future event taking place. So there's confusion exactly about what and when and how the word trumpet is to be defined and used in many places in Scripture. Some good people have taught that, that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation chapter 11, 15 are one in the same, and they come to the conclusion that the church will suffer through a mid-tribulation rapture. They will go through the first portion of the tribulation before they are removed by God. They say that those uses of the words trumpet are identical. Well, we here at Lacey Chapel teach the pre-tribulational rapture. That is, all believers will be removed before the tribulation takes place. That's part of our hope. 
We hope that that takes place. But can we really know what these trumpets mean? Can we really know the truth? Does it really matter what the identification of these trumpets are? Well, I would say that there are some or many difficult questions in Scripture, and it's important to answer those questions to the best of our ability, especially when they impact our future hope. I don't want to go through the tribulation, do you? But that still should not influence the way we understand a text. We should understand it with the best exegesis. As I said again, one of the keys to understanding this is that Paul uses that pronoun, we, here in this text. He is saying that he expects the rapture to happen. He says, we will all be changed. If that was not true, that if he was going to go through the rapture, you'd think he would have articulated that here in this text. So, if the point is that believers are to live in the present with the hope of the future rapture, that is eviscerated by a mid-tribulational rapture. That cannot be correct. It cannot be equal to the seventh trumpet of the book of Revelation, which does not happen to the church, but it takes place for the Jews during the tribulation. The last trumpet is not blown for the church. Um, excuse me, the last trumpet is blown for the church. The seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation is blown for Israel. A second view is that this trumpet, last trumpet, speaks of the end of the tribulation. Post-tribulationists, those who believe that the church goes all the way through the tribulation, believe and equate this trumpet with that of the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation as well. But that cannot be correct either, because the judgments, you remember the bowls and all of that good stuff that takes place there, well, not good stuff, but all of that stuff that takes place there happens for the Jew to bring them to Christ. The wayward children of Israel are badgered, if you will, brought to Christ by these judgments brought upon them during the tribulation period. Paul writes to encourage the church at Thessalonica, saying that they will not have to go through these tribulations. In chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he writes at the very end of it, verse 12, that we are to He says this to encourage them, to wait for the sun from heaven. What does that sound like? To wait for the sun from heaven. That's the rapture that he's speaking of. Who rescues us, again he includes himself, from the wrath to come. So what then does the last trumpet actually mean? What does it refer to? I think Paul had one of several practices in mind. You can choose which one you think fits, or you can say that many fit uh, his viewpoint of what he's trying to get across to the Corinthians. For example, the Roman army used trumpets. They had a first trumpet, which was used to signal for the signal to the to the troops to begin to form up to begin their march. The last trumpet was blown to signal the troops to move forward in their march towards the enemy or their new place of inhabitation. We find this information about the Roman army clearly articulated by Josephus in his book, The Jewish Wars. 
Paul could also be saying that the last trumpet signals the removal of the church from earth as they make their way towards heaven. So then the last trumpet could not refer to a middle of the rapture removal or an end of the rapture, end of the tribulation removal, because it moves the church to be into the presence of God at the beginning of the rapture. This fits nicely with the time constraints that we see from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27, as well as the book of Revelation. Now, Paul could also have had in mind um, the idea of a Jewish concept of the trumpet. It is, used, is a figurative use uh, by the Jews that would, they would blow the trumpet to gather people for the um, gathering of those to worship. There were many trumpets that they used, Some were called to tell the people that the service was about to begin in an hour and then a half an hour. They had several trumpets, and the last trumpet signaled that the worship service at the trumpet was beginning. Now, what is the trumpet is another question. Some people think of the trumpet as actually a horn being blown in the skies. Is that true? Is it a metaphor? Is it figurative? Well, Paul uses the phrase trumpet several times to describe the beginning of the rapture. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he describes it as, For when the Lord himself descends from the heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, there it is, the dead in Christ will rise. So what kind of a trumpet is this? Well, we see this trumpet spoken of in another place. In the book of Revelation, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, we find, where, find its use by John the Revelator, there when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, here it is, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And when he turned around to see who was speaking, he saw Christ. So then we could understand, if that's the controlling idea of what this trumpet is, that the last trumpet is actually the voice of God Uh, in particular of Jesus Christ, calling the church to meet him in the air. The Lord has chosen to reveal many things to us. He's also given us many mysteries. Some things he wants us to understand clearly. Other things are not so clear. The point is that we need to trust him for that which we know and that which we do not know. That's why the study of the word is so important. It's the key to unlocking difficult texts such as the one that we examined this morning, particularly this verse. As we understand what the trumpets are, both not only in the Bible but historically as revealed through other writings, we can come to conclude that this is probably the call of God to the heavens for the church, their movement up, and it's the voice of God that is speaking and not literally a trumpet. As you know, the book of Revelation is a mystery to many. It's a difficult book to understand for some. Yet the title tells us that it is a revelation. It is a revealing of mysteries to us. And yet there are many figures used in it, many metaphors that are difficult to ascertain their true meaning to. So we need to do the best we can from the information that is given to us. But we must understand and know that God wants us to know when the rapture will take place and how it will occur so that we can prepare ourselves for it by being ready. His rapture of the church is 
imminent. We are to be ready for his coming. So Paul speaks to believers of his age about this transition from, transition from death to life, from physical mortality, mortality to eternal life. He tells us that so that we will be ready, so that we will live a life of imminency. This will take place, as he said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we, says Paul, shall be changed. So there's no question that this will happen. And Paul encourages us with these words. The question concerning the trumpets here and in Revelation and 1 Thessalonians can be confusing. But we need to do the best we can to understand them and remember that no one knows the complete truth. But our hope is to be raptured from this place and to not have to go through the tribulation that is described as hell on earth. So, one of the keys for my cementing in my mind of what this text means is is this. We tend to look at the Bible um, not chronologically, but written at the same time. We tend to look at the epistles as all being written at the same time and not understanding the differences. But 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians were written 50 years before the book of Revelation. When people interpret the last trumpet through the book of Revelation, they're not understanding that that would have been meaningless to Paul's listeners. They would have no idea what he's talking about as far as John's book of Revelation. It hadn't been written. It wouldn't be written for five decades. So how could they possibly interpret the last trumpet through the eyes of Paul speaking of trumpets for the rapture? So that really helps clear things up for me. If Paul had intended that we connote these trumpets all as one and the same, he would have had to teach about the coming tribulation and all of those elements of it, the bowls and the trumpets and all of that. So 50 years makes a huge difference. These books are not interconnected. They take place at different times and are written to completely different people. Those in Corinth, however, would have been completely familiar with the Roman army. They knew it. It marched through their lands. It... uh, was obvious to them the trumpets that were being blown first and last. They would have been very intimate. The Jews in the church at Corinth would have been very familiar and understand all of the intricacies of the trumpets, the shofars that were blown at the temple. So this would have made complete sense as the way I've articulated it to you for them. And in fact, the Jews in the church at Corinth would have understood what the blowing of the shofar meant. It's would have meant to them that they were to gather together for worship in ranks, just as the Roman soldiers would have understood that the different trumpets meant that they were to gather together also in ranks. And we see that embedded here in the text as well. Notice in the text in verse 12, I believe it is, 23, In verse 23 of this same text, Paul writes about different orders of those in the body of Christ. The Roman armies gathered in ranks, the people of Israel gathered in 
in companies and in ranks to go worship and to ascend to the temple. And so we see that reflected in the words of verse 23 when Paul states that there are different orders or ranks in the resurrection. He says, every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, there are those at Christ. Though there are those are Christ at his coming. So here we see the church is divided into at least two different groups or ranks or orders. And then the, there's the dead in Christ who will rise together as one rank and those who are alive who will rise in another. So this fits perfectly with our understanding of either Ro- the Romans army using the trumpet or the Jewish using of the trumpet at the temple. So then this last trumpet is my conclusion, is the voice of God calling, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ specifically, calling the church to to assemble and gather in an orderly manner to their trip into the air to join with him and to receive their new spiritual bodies. So, just like the examples of the Roman army, just like the example of the usage of the trumpets at the temple, we can understand that this orderly evacuation, if you will, cannot fit with a post-tribulation or mid-tribulation view of the rapture of the truth. However, no man knows the hour or the day of his return, and so this information is all that we have to base our understanding of the chronological events. In many ways, there are things that are still mysterious to us, and we can only know when we experience and go through it. So, the idea here that's being put forth is to be ready, be prepared, for it might happen at any moment. The Lord could return at this exact moment in time in which we live. The question is, why all the mystery? Why is it so unclear, all these things about the upcoming events, the rapture, the second coming, and all those things that will take place quickly. Why didn't the Lord just lay it all out for us? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it makes us more diligent students. Maybe it makes us wonder more at the mystery of God. But notice in verse 53, where it says this, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, in this mortal must put on immortality. Unfortunately, the English translation of the Greek text once again fails us. The word translated here as must is the Greek term dia. And in the Greek sentence, it's pushed all the way forward in its writing. This tells us that we cannot go to heaven as we are now. For we must have new Bodies. The old body, the perishable, has got to go. Now, if we would never be able to understand all of this unless we get rid of our old earthen vessels, like those who have died, the living also must exchange the temporal, the imperfect flesh, for that which is perfect and eternal. So we see the perishable must put on imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. Two different distinct groups of people. Let me explain that. The perishable speaks of those who are dead and gone. 
they must put on imperishable. But the mortal is the one who is still alive, and he must put on immortality. So Paul has continued this idea of the dead and the alive meeting God in the air. We have that clearly stated that the perishable, the dead, put on the imperishable. And the mortal, that's alive, the person who's alive must put on immortality. And the result is that you will experience victory over death. The dead and Christ rise first and are transformed. We see this again repeated in verse 54. The same structure is used. But when this perishable puts on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality. And the end will come about which the saying is written, death is swallowed up in victory. He reemphasizes the truth of this by repeating it using different words. He tells us again and again that those who have died shall put on eternal life. And those who are alive will be transformed and never die through these same similar synonyms and words. So we have victory over death. Death has been vanquished. We are no longer under a death sentence for those who are alive and uh, there when Jesus comes at the rapture. There will be no grave for them to occupy. There will be no no decomposition of his flesh, just victory over death. The truth is, millions of saints have died and gone before us, and they are in their graves. But when he returns in an instant, in a moment in time, in the twinkling of an eye, they will come to life and they will meet the Lord in the air and they will meet their bodies, their physical bodies there, and their souls will be joined together with them. Now, I think Paul is kind of taunting those who don't believe in the resurrection here. He's saying that there will be victory. Death will be swallowed up. Remember a couple Weeks before I left for vacation, we discussed those who didn't believe in the resurrection. Remember the sad you sees? They were sad because they didn't believe that the resurrection. Here Paul's kind of taunting them. If this was the NFL, they'd be throwing a flag at Paul for kind of rubbing it in their faces. The point is death has been completely done away with for believers. It's been vanquished by the power of Christ and his resurrection, and he has freed them from the presence, the power, and the penalty of sin. And he exalts in this. We have complete victory. Death's been swallowed up. That's the point. He continues with this thought, and Paul, the good rabbi, looks back to the Old Testament, and he takes two separate passages from the Old Testament, and he merges them together in the statement in verse 55 where he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where... Is oh excuse me oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting, he combines Isaiah twenty five eight which actually says this I will swallow up death for all time and then he brings in Hosea thirteen fourteen and he links them together oh death where are your thorns oh Sheol where is your sting. He loosely adapts these two phrases from the Old Testament for his purposes in order to show that the curse has been reversed. The apparent victory of Satan in the Garden of Eden and then again at the cross of Golgotha has been reversed by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over death. Now, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2 and verse 14 this important statement. Since the children share in flesh and blood, all people, 
See her in flesh and blood. He himself likewise, Dave, we talked about this this morning in Sunday school class, also partook of the same, and that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those through fear of death were subject to the slavery of it their whole lives. Death has been defeated for believers. The devil has been vanquished. Death has been dealt a death blow, if you will, because the sting of death has been removed. Here in a short, concise, doctrinal review of the relationship between sin, death, and the law, Paul concludes that the sting of death is done away with. You see, the sting of death is sin. For it is by sin that death gains authority over man. But it is by the law that sin gets its strength. The law shows us that we are in rebellion and in conscious defiance of our God. And in verse 56, we read that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. (coughs) They're interrelated. The sting of death is sin. That's what kills us, but it's empowered, it's strengthened, it's strengthened by the law. But through the death of Christ, through his burial, And his resurrection, the sting, has been removed. Death no longer has power over us. Sin no longer has power over us. We have victory over sin, death, and the grave. It's been said that if there was no sin, there would be no death. And if there were no law, there would be no condemnation. Death rests on two important premises. Sin calls for our condemnation. The law pronounces that condemnation. But as Paul wrote to the Romans and as he writes in this text, that has all been done away with by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 of the book of Romans, he writes about the law, sin, and death. He says this, but now apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation that's his death, burial, and resurrection, in his blood through faith. That was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time during the last last dispensation, so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, the new dispensation. When, When there, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? Do you have to work your way to heaven? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The only thing the law does is condemn. The only thing sin does is bring death. But faith, he says here now, nullifies the law. May the law never be, is his point. On the contrary, the law is established by sin and death. That's exactly what Paul is telling the Corinthians here. The law simply shows us our 
great need, that we are sinners who are incapable of saving ourselves. No good work, no obedience to the law will ever save us. That's the point of the law. We're all lawbreakers. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to shed his blood on the cross of Calvary to save us. He proved who Jesus was by the resurrection, that he overcame sin, death, and the grave. He conquered it. He came out of the grave victorious in order to justify those who believe in him, the lawbreakers, made right, righteous by his death, not by our works. This is a great gift given to us that we ought to praise God for. Look at verse 57. That's what Paul does. He breaks out now in a spontaneous praise of God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Do you think you're working your way to heaven? Do you think there's anything you can do to make yourself righteous? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. You don't do it. He does it. Our victory over sin, death, and the grave is given to us by Jesus Christ. You don't do it. It's not through self-effort or good works. Notice Paul says, he uses the Greek verb translated gives, is in the present tense. That's the same word that was used to describe Jesus breaking the loaves and the fishes and he kept on giving, remember? He just kept on giving the food. He keeps on giving until all were satisfied. He keeps on giving us the victory. That means every morning we open our eyes and we awake, it's Easter morning for us. We have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. That sweet victory is over sin. We don't have to sin, we choose to sin. It's over death. We do have to die unless He comes, it's over the grave. He's victorious over it all. He's robbed death of its power. He's removed that stinger. Have you ever been bitten by a bee? You know, most bees, when they sting you, they leave the stinger in you, and they can no longer hurt anyone ever again. Jesus Christ's death removed the sting of death. The stinger was left in him. In a very real sense, death stung itself to death on the cross of Calvary. Now notice in verse 58, he comes to his conclusion. He wraps this whole chapter up with this verse. Therefore, that's what the therefore means. You ever wonder what therefore is? It's pointing back to everything that's just been said. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is one of the great doctrinal declarations by Paul that leads to practical instruction in the believer's life. He urges them to stand firm in the apostles' teaching, to be unmoved by the false teachers who denied the mysteries that Paul revealed. He begins this phrase saying, all this stuff up to this point I've said to tell you this, therefore, and he's saying this to his beloved, my beloved brethren. You know, he's saying that despite all the conflict Paul had with them. Remember? They made fun of him. They said he had bold legs. Remember that? They said that they'd prefer Apollos, anybody over Paul. They slighted him. They preferred the false teachers over him. And yet Paul says, my beloved brethren. Now he gives three ways in which he can, they can apply these truths. 
instead of waffling on truth and telling the people what they wanted to hear, he, he straightens them out. He drives home this truth. He says the bodily resurrection is what you should be looking forward to. It's truth. And based on that, you should be what you should be. Listen, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers in Christ's resurrection, that he's returning for us and that he will bodily raise us from the dead or that we will meet him in the air. Be what you should be. Don't be squeezed into the world's mold. Be what you should be, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you should be steadfast and immovable in the truth. Like the Corinthians were prone to wander, to be impatient, to be easily discouraged, to be lazy. When trouble comes in this life, many have wanted to quit Christianity, chalking it up just to a phase in their life. Paul tells us to remain firm in our faith, to remain steadfast in our service, not to waffle, not to quit, but to keep at it continuously, for the Lord will reward you. Secondly, Paul urges believers to do what we should do. Paul urges us to abound in the work of the Lord. Do what you should do. Overflowing out of your life should be the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to others. It should come out and flow over the top of your cup as it's described in Psalm 23. Think of the Olympic Games which Paul was in Greece was just a few miles away, perhaps, from where he was. The Olympic Games. Do you ever wonder how to win a medal at the Olympic Games? It's not by being lazy. It's not by quitting in the middle of your training. It's by keeping at it. How many people come to church and they say, I did that, I've done that, it's all over, now it's somebody else's turn. That wasn't Paul's attitude. It was, do what you should be doing. Be what you should be. Abounding in the work of the Lord. You don't see athletes that want to win that medal quitting in the middle of their practice. They continue despite all the pain and the hurts and the agony of training. That means that we might have to change our priorities to do what we should do. We might have to give up certain goals that we have in our lives. We might have to give up certain privileges we think that are ours. We might have to give up sleep, our favorite foods, Anything and everything must come under the lordship of Christ if we are to stand on the victor's stand, to do what we should do, to be what we should be, as Paul says here. It means that we need to abound in the work of the Lord. If you desire to hear his words, well done, my good and faithful servant, there's no quitting. There's no resting. Thirdly, the believer needs to know what we should know. There will be no excuses on Judgment Day when you stand before him on that beam of seat and he looks down with you with those piercing eyes and you say, well, I didn't know. Stupidity is not allowed. Laziness is not allowed at the judgment seat of Christ. Some wag once said in the past, I'm learning more and more about less and less. Now I know everything about nothing. But Paul says he urges us to know that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. How many times have you wanted to quit? Quit Sunday school, quit Awana, quit going to church. Then you don't know. You don't know that your toil is not in vain. God will reward you. That's the promise. 
when he returns at his second coming at the rapture, we will stand before him and he will reward you for your faithfulness. Or you will lose rewards for your unfaithfulness. It's up to you. Know what you should know. Be what you should be and do what you should do. That's Paul's admonition to the Corinthians. Quit with all your silly excuses and get to work abounding in the work of the Lord. You ever heard of the name Aphroditus? Paul mentions Aphroditus several times in his letters. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, he calls him a dear brother, a fellow worker and fellow soldier. Then just a few verses later in that same text, Paul says that Aphroditus almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. You know, if we believed in this patron saint stuff, we might make Aphrodite as the patron saint of the church. He lived out what he believed. These mortal bodies which we have are only temporary. Four score, maybe, if you're lucky. Then it's all over. Then you go to be with him. Be like Aphrodite. Abound in the work of the Lord. Your toil is not in vain. Even if it takes your life, expend it for something worthwhile. Expend it for the work of God. Quit your selfishness. Quit being pressured into the world's mold and live as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving it your all, even if it means your life. Do you remember Solomon? He wrote that book called Ecclesiastes. Remember that? Searching for the meaning of life, Solomon was. The wisest guy that ever lived. You remember what he concluded? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Paul undoes all of that with this mystery when he says that all believers can know the victory of victories. All is victory for the believer. Would you bow with me for prayer? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the truth of the resurrection. It changes our life. Help us to do what we should do and know what we should know and be what we should be. Help us to do this because the Lord Jesus Christ empowers us through his Holy Spirit. Help us to do this because the Word of God instructs us to. Help us, Father, to live the changed life that we enjoy now as we anticipate changed bodies when we're with our Lord in heaven. Do this, Lord, in our lives. Work in us and through us. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.